Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, this is a long time coming. I have been so, so excited for what all of our platforms are going to experience. Like, I feel like I'm talking to Hanu, but I'm not just talking to Hanu. I'm talking to two other podcasts right now and to three other podcasters, health and wellness influencers, biohacking extraordinaires. That's because this is a round table. And if you're watching on YouTube on the Hanu channel, welcome. If you're listening on all the podcast platforms, welcome. Uh, This is a round table of four or well, I'll say three extraordinary people. I don't know about myself, uh, but three at least extraordinary individuals who have like expertise and backgrounds in like all sorts of cool, diverse areas. And that's why we really wanted to get this together was because we wanted to provide you with just like a really cool, like easygoing, like banter-esque Q&A style podcast with just the four of us. And so welcome all three of you, uh, because I don't won't throw myself into that mix Glad to be here with Molly McLaughlin, Renee, and Lauren, who are the Biohacker Babes. It's good to be here. Thanks for doing this. This is awesome. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun because I think that all four of us just come from unique, diverse backgrounds. We have just different levels of expertise and knowledge and understanding. But one thing I think that all four of us would agree on are like we're people who have a background in something, but we like to practice what we preach and we test things like crazy. And so I just feel like that diverse experience and knowledge would just make for a really fun podcast, which is why we did this. So Welcome to you all. I think it would probably be best served that we all introduce ourselves and like, what is our platform? What's our background and expertise? Even though to my recollection, I think we've all been on each other's respective podcasts. Is that right? I think we've all been on each other's podcasts, right? Yes. And you were maybe on twice on the Biohacker Babes, right? I think so. Yeah. That might might be right as well. So yeah, it's not a great like cross pollination. It just makes a lot of sense. So um, how about we run down the list? I can finish this off because I've been the one who's been chattering the most already. Uh, but how about Molly? You take it first and then we'll go Molly, Renee, Lauren. Well, one, I'm so happy to be here. I think this is just incredible. Such uh, admiration for all the work that you all do. So this is just going to be awesome. Uh, my name is Molly McLaughlin. I own a company called Sleep is a Skill that helps people optimize their sleep through a blend of technology, accountability, behavioral change. Uh, we do have a podcast called the Sleep is a Skill podcast where we bring on different sleep experts every single week to help people optimize their sleep in various uh, areas of their life. And we also have a weekly uh, newsletter. It's, you know, 206 editions or so of that every Monday for years, uh, online courses, et cetera. But 
really, really on a mission to help it really transform the conversation around sleep on the planet. So the more I can do that, uh, it's just an honor. And to do that today is going to be awesome. Yes. Awesome. Thanks, Molly. And I will say like, Molly, you are, and I told you this when we podcasted last, like you were like my go-to sleep person. So like when it comes to like all things sleep, I'm like, what's Molly got to say on this? So I, you know, before we, we, uh, got onto this, uh, episode or recording, I was like, Molly, I want to know if you know anything about this. And we'll talk that that's kind of the teaser we have for a question coming up because I'm, like, I'm super curious and I feel like Molly will have at least some level of knowledge on it. Well, the feeling is mutual with you all too. It's, I'm really not just saying that it's like, you're my go-to HRV person, my biohacker babes. I talk about them all the time. They're fantastic. Uh, so be sure to follow all these podcasts if you're not already following them. Yeah. Uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. I mean, ditto to everything. I mean, you guys have the best podcast. I love Honey Health and Sleep is a Skill. And Molly knows that she has my favorite health newsletter or e-letter in the world. Oh, that's so nice. Always learn such great tips. And I know I boxered you last night with like more sleep questions. So I can't wait to hear yes, what you said about that. Yes, I just got back to you, which I got so excited about. Renee is doing all kinds of cool stuff with her sleep. So more to come. It's so Ooh. fun. And now, so fun. now you've got, you've piqued my interest. I want to hear what she's doing with her sleep. Maybe we'll talk about that later. <laughs> we have time. There we yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. So about me, I'm Renee Bells. I'm a biohacker babe along with my sister Lauren. And our goal with the podcast of the Biohacker Babes is really to empower people to be their own biohacker. Just like you said, Dr. J, we're always testing new things and we really want to empower people to feel like they have the ability to test things and try new things out and be a biohacker. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I, I mentioned how much I love Molly's podcast, but that doesn't mean that I don't love your podcast because I listen to your podcast all the time. So like Renee and Lauren are like my go-to is like, oh, what's the cool new like biohacking gear out there? What's the cool like lab testing that's out there right now? You guys always have it covered. I heard this morning I was listening to one of your podcasts and you did drop the biohacker babes in there. So I always appreciate that. Listen, I try to do it wherever I can. Like if I can drop any of the three of your names into something, like I truly try to do it. So it's like if if anybody hears me on Ben's podcast, Ben Greenfield, like anytime I can throw that in there, I try to do it. I'm trying to drive awareness to you guys. And all right, Lauren. Cool. Hi, I'm Lauren Sampatero, other half of the Biohacker Babes. Um, just a little bit more about the podcast. We release every Monday and our motto is empowering you to be your own biohacker. So we really care about sharing the tools and the resources so you can answer your own questions. Um, we always like to say that we don't have the answers for you, but we certainly can walk you down that path and help you get there and figure out your own health puzzle. So that's a lot of fun. And I have a great partner to do that. Yeah. So I'm a health practitioner. I started out as a personal trainer. Um, I studied with the Czech Institute. So that was my background, but now primarily doing functional health coaching, lab testing. And I started the nutrition program with Levels Health. So a lot of my clients are using CGMs these days, which is awesome. Very passionate about that biohacking tech and uh, just revealing the metabolic health side, which I think a lot of us don't feel, but maybe are experiencing some imbalances with. So yeah, I'm glad to have you here, Lauren. And that's really exciting about Levels program. I actually did not know that they were doing that. And I think that's brilliant because that technology is going to, I mean, it's a, it's a game changer. Like it's just an absolute game changer. And so I think that if people know how to interpret it, how to use it, man, like that is a really incredible tool. So I'm excited to hear more and learn more about that side of things from you as well. So yeah, the interpretation piece, I think is the next 
next level? Because we're all obsessed with biohacking tech here, but it's like, how does the consumer kind of sort through the data? Because it's a lot. Yeah. So I'm hoping that Hanu next level has glucose monitoring in it too. So, you know, it's interesting. Just dropping I, a little. Well, I'll throw, it, I'll throw a teaser out there and say that there have been so many talks between Hanu and Levels already. So I'll leave, leave everybody with bated breath because there's, I mean, when we're talking about like glucose metabolic control, cortisol health, and then we talk about overall autonomic nervous system regulation. These are so intertwined that it would only make sense that there is some level of partnership and collaboration. Well, let me quickly introduce myself. Um, Dr. Jay Wiles. I just go by Jay. I th only throw the doctor in there for a small level of credibility. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, I try to keep things informal, but I'm a clinical health psychologist uh, by trade. That's my discipline with more of a focus, or I would say even a specialization in health psychology, performance psychology, and then take it even a step further to the field of stress, physiology, psychophysiology, and probably most well-known for my work in as a subject matter expertise in heart rate variability and biometrics. I'm the chief scientific officer and co-founder of Hanu Health. We're a wearable health technology company. I host the Hanu Health podcast. Uh, and then I also co-host the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast. Our guest is Ben Greenfield Life now with Ben Greenfield. And I uh, just have a lot of fun just like studying and learning and providing good quality education, at least I hope good quality education, to dispel some of the myths just around biometrics and stress and performance. And so so I'm just really excited to be a part of this roundtable um, because for me, like the one thing that I've really wanted um, out of my podcast, but also to just in general, is just like a lot more powerful female voices, like in the field of health and wellness and performance and biohacking. And so for me, it was like a no brainer. I was like, I know three incredible women who I can get to be a part of this that will make for a really good, well-rounded discussion. Because I think with a round table, like if you just have a bunch of dudes, which I've been a part of plenty of times, like there's just a missing component there. And especially in my field, when we talk about mental health and well-being and stress, uh, yes, it impacts both males and females. But in the health and wellness community, a lot of the times the strategies and therapeutics are more pointed towards males. So for me, I was like, yeah, this is going to scratch my own itch because I feel like it is such an underserved thing like in my community and I guess in all of our community uh, in regards to not having women. So I'm glad that it's I'm kind of glad that this time I'm the only dude. So glad to have three amazing women here. All right, everybody. So one thing I wanted to do uh, was introduce ourselves, but I love starting off like roundtables with just a fun like question that we throw out there just as a bit of banter. And one thing that I know we've talked about offline, but now we can talk about it while we're re being recorded is this whole concept of people are always interested in food and nutrition, but they're more interested in like, what are you doing for your own food and your own nutrition? And I get this question asked all the time and I really enjoy answering it because mine does tend to vary. The answer that is today is probably a little bit more of a common day for me, but it does vary at times. And it's what's your typical breakfast or better yet, more specifically, what did you eat today? Or maybe what did you not eat? So I'm curious to you all and feel free to jump in whenever you want to. What'd you have to eat today for breakfast? And we should clarify that it's 12 o'clock now East coast, but let's say breakfast. What'd you eat for breakfast? Yeah. Or first meal of the day. First meal. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Um, I started with a base of grass-fed Greek yogurt, and I just added a ton of stuff in there. It's like, how much can I squeeze? How many nutrients can I squeeze in there? Um, basic things like chia seeds, some protein powder, uh, this gut microbiome powder, and 
a lot of other micronutrients, superfoods. I just squeeze it all in there and make like a little parfait in the morning. Nice. That was delicious. Fancy. Oh, love that. Yummy. I love it. Is that is that your typical, Lauren? No, it's always different. So uh, this question is hilarious to me. Question, uh, clients ask me all the time what I eat, and I'm like, I don't know. It depends on the day. And I, I know that's really confusing and, and frustrating, but I've worked really hard on my intuitive eating and and finding like a nice rhythm of diversity and cycling different macros and types of food. And so I'm at a point where I can just kind of listen to my body and give it what it needs on any particular day. And so it's a little bit of a surprise and there's not always a structure to that anymore. There was at some point, but no, I, I rotate that. I do eggs and greens and sausage in the morning. Sometimes it's a shake, sometimes bone broth. I don't know. Depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one thing that I always find interesting about meals, and I kind of have like two different, almost like competing perspectives on this. They're like on the one hand, like I love variety and I feel like there's enough evidence and research to say that variety is really important. On the other hand, I love simplicity. So it's like, I've actually been toying around with this idea of like eating the same thing for lunch every single day because I won't have to think about it. And like, I don't have time to like plan and prep. It's just like, if I have two cans of sardines, one avocado, and then something else like normally raspberries, which is actually, I'm kind of showing my hand here. That's what my lunch has become. Uh, it's two cans, two is like two things, a wild plant, uh, sardines, a avocado, and then like a little like cup of raspberries. Like that's my lunch each day. Like I like that simplicity, but I'm also like, uh Oh, am I going to like overtrain my system or at least train my system to think like, this is it. This is all you are to expect. And could that have problems? I'm curious for both of you too, for Lauren and Renee, since your expertise is in nutrition, like, do you see pros and cons benefits to like that approach? Or like, is that okay to like have just like a bunch of consistency in order to have simplicity? I mean, you went like high nutrients on that one. So <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I guess if you're doing I that tried. three meals a day, seven days a week, maybe we could run into some problems. But if like lunches is the meal that you have the most trouble with, and I would say that for any client, if that is the meal of the day that you struggle with, and you're going to fail, if you don't do the same thing every day, like just be consistent. I, I like that. Yeah. And well, that that honestly has been my mindset around this. For me, I'm okay with varying what I eat for breakfast and dinner, especially because dinner is much more of a communal family type thing. My wife and I always cook together. Our kids are always actively engaged in that process. So I don't want an oversimplification there simply because I think the community and relationship piece might get a little bit lost. But the lunchtime, it's like, I'm here in my office. Like I need to just kind of get going. Like I just want to have, I know what I'm eating. Like I also do this with dress as well. And I know a lot of like Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs have done that. It's like, they just have the same things they wear every day. And I I basically have like 20 of this type of Viore shirt and then like 20 of like the Viore shorts that I'm wearing right now. And like, I don't think about it. I go. Uh, it's the same thing I wear to the gym. It's the same thing I wear all day to the work. I mean, I change because I do get a little sweaty sometimes. However, it's like the same exact thing. I'm changing from one thing to the same thing almost. So, okay. Well, that's good to know that I'm not completely wrecking my system. Yeah. Renee, what do you think? I mean, I would add in, you know, do you run an IgG food panel just to make sure you're not, you know, creating any issues there? I have to say I've never seen sardines come up on anyone's IgG panel, so that's good news. I have seen avocado come up though. Avocado and eggs seems like the big one I always see. Oh, 
Because most Americans are eating that seven days a week, right? You think, okay, for breakfast, I don't want to eat the cereal, the pancakes, the bagel. What do I eat? I eat eggs. And then they're eating it seven days a week for 10 years. And they're like, oh, now I can't eat eggs. I would definitely rotate those. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. I could eat eggs every single day. And there was a time in my life where that is that's literally what I broke every single fast with every morning was four or five whole eggs cooked in coconut oil or you know avocado oil. And I would go and get tested for it. And it was like, boom, spiked up on it. It's like, uh-oh, need to titrate that down. So it's interesting. And you know, I've heard some kind of conflicting things about that, that it's like maybe that even though you're having kind of more or less this immune response, to uh, to the foods that you're continuously eating, that that's not inherently a bad thing. But then you start to hear the reverse of saying, no, it actually kind of is like you're starting to cause some immunosuppression. Like, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I know I'm kind of derailing us, but this is all interesting information. I, I would say something that could be helpful is to rule that issue out is avoid that food for four to seven days and then do the IgG test. Because certainly if you do the IgG test on Tuesday, what you had on Monday commonly will come up, which you're right, can like skew the results. So I would say to get like a really clean picture if it's a problem, three to four, seven-ish days, just cut it out and then test it, especially with like gluten or dairy, something like that. I just want to add, and I see a lot of my clients love to do Viome, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I think just for food diversity and motivation for switching things up, it can be helpful. And people will follow their avoid list. They'll avoid it for the six weeks like Viome recommends. They retest and then all of their superfoods are now on their avoid list. They're like, oh gosh. So I'm like, okay, science is telling us moderation and continue to rotate. It's actually like more simple than we think. Okay. Well, cool. Sorry for the derail there. Renee, what did you eat today? What did you, you eat for breakfast? Speaking of eggs, that's <laughs> what I go. had today. It's only 9.30 in the morning for me. So it was kind of like a get up and start running for the day. So I just had two fried eggs cooked in grass-fed nice. butter. Yes. Quick nice. and easy, some protein and fat. But I'm like Lauren, you know, I'll mix it up. Sometimes I'll do a shake. Sometimes I'll do some chicken sausage, bacon. love bacon. Nice. But just try and mix it up. And eggs, I always do... I would say no more than four days a week. Because you don't want to have kind of those spikes in IgG? Yeah. Because like that is my one of my greatest fears in life is to not be able to eat eggs. That would be a bad day. What's that uh, disease like that's caused by ticks um, that like will can result in you like becoming like extremely nauseous when you eat red meat and even like you can't keep it down? I, I don't know what it's called or remember it, but that is like my biggest fear because like if red meat, like if my grass fed meat or like steaks, ribeyes, if that was taken away from me, it's, it's a bad, bad day. But I forgot what that disease is called, but it's a tick like born disease. Not for me. Not for me. Not for me. All right, Molly, what'd you eat for breakfast? All right. Well, after all the cautionary tales on eggs, it's a good reminder on this call that I need to diversify a little bit because I love my eggs. I love them. Um, I did have, I've been upping the number of eggs I've been having too. I am all of, you know, five foot two. And yet I did have four eggs today. Man, look uh, at you. Anyone listening. I know. Look at me. I'm really trying to, you know, bring bulk up it, Bulk it up. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. I know. Um, and I, you know, for anyone listening, of course, I know there's a lot of kind of preconceived notions about different types of foods and eggs and too much of this, too little of that, what have you. But, um, I will say certainly I am personally a big fan of that. Uh, 
in alignment. The other thing I had with it was base culture. If you know the um, base culture bread, which I really, um, that's probably one of my guilty pleasures right now. I'm trying to work it out. I'm trying to get rid of as many things like in a bag or a box as possible, but I love base culture. So I had a slice of that, which is fantastic. And seemingly so far, Lauren, maybe you can share, but I have not seen any change at all in my CGM when having that. So that's been fantastic. I know. Have base you guys culture, all tried yeah. this? I, I have not. I know I know about it, but oh. I have not tried it. But it sounds like it's been a game changer for you, even though you called it a guilty pleasure. So I'm a little bit worried. Yeah, what's it made from? So it has, um, I want to say, uh, I think um, arrow, flour. Um, then it has apple cider vinegar, really clean ingredients and you know keto-friendly, very low-carb. Um, it's like kind of my go-to fun thing. But in end, it's literally just flat lines on the CGM, which is That's fantastic. Really so it's found a way to get myself some sort of semblance of like a slice of toast, you know? Yeah. Uh, so big fan of that. Check it out if anyone hasn't. But Do they sell that in like normal like retail stores, like Whole Foods or Sprouts? Or do you Whole have to like Foods order it online? It. Whole Foods got it? Okay. You can order online. Um, Whole Foods has it for like, you know, it's like 10 bucks a loaf or something. So it's definitely a little bit of a market for cheap. the average. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's not the uh, sale items like you were discussing. (laughs) There's a big percentage of our grocery budget has been going to base culture lately. Right. Uh, Well, it's like, hey, if you're paying $6 a gallon, you might as well buy bread or, you know, a resemblance of bread for 10 bucks. Like, why not? Oh, my God. I mean, seriously, check out the ingredients on this. Um, So if you're going to have a slice of bread, like that's that's my fun thing. Anyway, um, but what I would like to speak to more so, because certainly uh, the biohacker babes are nutritionist extraordinaire and so can speak to that with more clarity. Uh, For me, it's more about the timing of the meal timing piece and component that really is important to me. Do say more. Of course, with your choice. Uh, uh, So one thing that I find really, really fascinating, and maybe this could go along with what you're speaking to with the consistency piece, it sounds like you're wanting to have less um, thinking going on throughout the course of the day, which I am right there with you. Uh, so the automaticity from a circadian perspective, there seems to be a lot of value to one, establishing consistent meal times throughout the course of your day and sticking to those, whatever they may be, that's great. And yet, even better, uh, if you are able to make this happen, seems to be if you can front load more of your calories on the first half of the day. Of course, there's bio-individuality and a number of things that can come up for different individuals and social obligations and what have you. But if you can front load a number of those from a circadian perspective, and a lot of this is coming out of the research from Dr. Sachin Panda out of the Salk Institute, decades of research, um, and seems really compelling for this concept that even if you're beginning, so general rule of thumb, leaving yourself about an hour after you first wake up to kind of, you know, sleep inertia, come, come to a more awakened state throughout the course of the day, and then begin your uh, intake of food to then signal to the body that we're going to be doing a number of things. So we're going to be expending this energy. We're doing this for a reason. And even from an ancestral perspective, um, the thinking is that you would likely have only been able to really eat during sunrise or sunset historically anyway, because post sunset, we didn't have refrigerators. You couldn't go hunting uh, in the middle of the night in the dark. And so what's likely is most of your food would have been consumed during daylight hours. So with that, uh, the more consistent you can be with that, the better. And then the philosophy on volume seems to be one that you could play with something like 
uh, eat for like a king for breakfast, a queen for lunch, and a peasant or pulper for dinner has been some of the call outs. Now, certainly, Lauren, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that from a CGM perspective, or certainly Renee, too, um, just thinking of the levels piece. But, uh, you know, it's something that when people do start playing with this, one of the things that I often see, because every client I'm working with is wearing at least the aura ring, if not other, um, if we're going to say brands on here, um, or other sleep wearable trackers. Okay. So, uh, and then one of the things that we often see is when they do make some version of this shift, now it doesn't have to be dogmatic, but playing with making your meal timing a bit earlier on in the day, shifting the volume a bit, then we seem, seem to see a lowering of heart rate uh, throughout the course of the night, somewhat of an improvement on HRV, depending as long as we're kind of nailing the macros and a number of other things. And then in alignment with that, some changes in bodily temperature and respiratory rate. So it's an interesting thing to play with. And then I think just for the body to be able to anticipate, because there's really a, um, a process that the body's going into to be able to gear up for the really taxing process of digestion. And if you're able to know when that's going to happen, that can be really valuable. Hmm. Oh, fascinating stuff. You know, one thing, you know, one thing that's super interesting, and I'd love to hear Renee and Lauren, your take on kind of like the the whole idea of kind of like fluctuations in metabolic health and, and blood sugar. The one thing that I think like tends to confuse both myself and just a lot of people is like, there's, there's so many different, I don't know if it's, if it's a good way of saying it, but like dogma views on kind of like food timing and then also volume. You have some individuals who are like, okay, so lunch should be like the biggest, heaviest meal. And then some are like, no, actually you want to have a really large carb heavy dinner because that can help with sleep. And then some like are saying, no, OMAD and it's just all over the place. So it's like reconciling kind of like what is the actual go-to I think comes down to what you mentioned earlier, which is like bio-individuality. Like for me, my, the typical, like biggest meal of the day, like sometimes it is dinner depending on the day of the week. Like, especially if like we're hosting and having people over and we're you know doing a large family dinner, but for the most part, like it's typically more stacked towards lunchtime. And the reason for me there is because I have just found that I tend to sleep better. I have better overall recovery if I don't have such a heavy meal. And especially probably the most important thing would be timing. Like if I eat generally three, four, sometimes five hours prior to going to bed, like that is, that's the best for me in, in regards to overall sleep. So it just feels like, uh, sometimes it can be confusing for people. So I appreciate you like clarifying that Molly. And I would tend to agree for you, especially for me, like more of a heavier loaded, like front of my day, as opposed to the back end of my day, I just see better overall results, both objectively and subjectively. Yes. Two things I'd want to add to that too, or that if anyone's interested in this, because to your point, it can get confusing, but then this other person says, skip breakfast and uh, what do you do? So uh, if anyone wants to, uh, you know, kind of research a bit more about this, two uh, terms that you could look up would be one circadian rhythm, intermittent fasting. And really that's just a fancy series of words to mean eating between sunrise and sunset and, you know, largely doing that, of course, not getting crazy because every so often social engagements or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly our society is more tipped towards backloading our calories mm -hmm. towards later. Um, so exploring that. And then the second one would be early time restricted feeding where in some of those it's looking in certain studies, um, often participants are ending their meals at around like 2 PM, 1 PM, mm -hmm. things like that. So much earlier on in the day, and you're really kind of 
flipping instead of skipping breakfast, you're skipping dinner. I'll throw two things in there. Um, one is I remember Thomas DeLauer talking about some really interesting research on skipping breakfast. Molly remembers this. Yes, from bi- um, uh, Biohacking, Biohacking Congress. Congress. Yes. Yeah, this was the first time I had heard this a couple of years ago, how he said you are better, the research was showing you're better off either skipping breakfast completely or sitting down and having like at least a four to 500 calorie breakfast. The people that woke up and had like one to 200 calories, right? Like the the bite of almond butter or something, that was their breakfast. Their basal metabolic rate was actually lower than the people that had a big breakfast or skipped breakfast altogether. I wanted to echo that because that was so good. I really loved his talk. Uh, and one of the other things that he, I liked that he spoke to was this concept of it, historically people talking about cheat meals and you know cheat dinners and all these things. And he was making an argument for if you're going to have a cheat meal, uh, kind of like you were saying, those higher caloric intake, you know, you're really going nuts uh, to have that as a cheat breakfast. So he was talking about having like you know um, these splurge breakfasts and going all out. I'm trying to remember some of the crazy things he was mentioning, but I'm in, you know, really go uh, <laughs> and see what would happen from that perspective. Cause then it's important to think about how glucose and insulin are on our circadian rhythm. Um, so there are differences based on the timing that you have even the exact same food and how your body will respond to that. So there was an interesting argument with that too. I thought it was cool. Well, it seems like too, from an energetics perspective, if you were going to have, you know, let's say your cheat breakfast, well, now you have actually much more of an opportunity throughout the day to actually utilize that energy so that you can mobilize it, whether it's exercise or in whatever fashion. I mean, it could be if you're eating the wrong things, but you're eating high caloric, like, you know, going out to Waffle House or whatever and eating a ginormous breakfast. Well, that's just going to really make you sluggish for the bulk majority of the day. But if it's a high calorically dense meal um, that let's say, quote unquote, healthy, but it's early in the morning. And even if it is more or less cheating because you include, let's say, some more processed carbs or whatever, whatever it may be, from an energetics perspective, it seems like you're going to be able to mobilize that energy better than if you do it at the end of the day. And well, now I'm just getting into bed, which we know we burn a lot of calories while we're sleeping, but also too, we do it in a different fashion and it sits and and metabolizes very differently. So uh, yeah, I think from an energetics perspective, that seems to make a lot of sense. And when I share here in just a second, like how I break my fast, I'm wondering what Thomas DeLauer would have to say about it. If he thinks that it's an okay thing or because of the context of how I typically break my fast, if that is okay. Okay. But before I jump into mine, I'm wondering, does anybody else have any other thoughts? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of... (laughs) Go on. I want to know, Lauren. I love (laughs) all the science. I'm so fascinated by it. Like, I want to read it all day long and all the stuff you shared, Molly, like that stuff is stacked and so powerful. But when I'm looking at CGMs and actually what's happening over a 24-hour period, you sprinkle in life and everything just gets blown to pieces. In an ideal world, like if we lived in a video game and we could just schedule our days and hours and meals perfectly, sure, I think eating like a king in the morning would be awesome. But most of my clients, they have kids, they're running to work, they're busy, they don't have time to to cook something, let alone sit. And, And then when we get into the intermittent fasting conversation, sure, most people want to skip dinner because they see the benefits of that in the literature, but they're like, that's the only time I have with my family. And I can't sit down with my kids Mm. and and have them see like, mommy's not eating dinner, you know? So I think there's all these variables. The the messages that can say. Social implications. So many social implications. And then, you know, just metabolic health in general, there's so many variables. Like it's not just about the glycemic response from food. And 
it's so funny to think we used to rely on the glycemic index for like how our health outcomes would be, but like they left out of that index, like stress, environmental toxins, poor sleep, exercise, like all the things that actually affect your blood sugar even more than food. So what happens Mm -hmm. with an ideal day of food, regardless of all those other variables? I mean, you have to meet the client where they're at. And so I think with all this nutrition dogma, I I think we have to let it go and just worry about ourselves is like, that's the big advice, because every single person is different. And every person's lifestyle or desires and goals and the ways that they want to run their day are just so vastly different. So starting with the science is a fabulous way to begin. But then like, how do we make it work? Because I think everyone here would agree that like compliance and consistency is going to be is going to trump anything else, any advice that you give a client. Well, and a couple of things too with that, like we had um, uh, uh, reps from Levels and NutriSense on the podcast. And one thing that I thought was interesting with both companies from all the information and data they're seeing seemed to be um, kind of a through line where even the idea of if you can move up the last meal of the day just a little bit earlier than you might normally do, playing with that. So they, what they called that is like, maybe normally you uh, have your last bite of food at around 7, 7.30. What if you were to see, is there any workability in making it 6, 5.30, things of that nature? And they were playing with that to see, could you one, almost have your cake and eat it too, no pun intended, hopefully not cake. For dinner. Uh, but <laughs> but you know, so how can you, how can you make it so that we can just give yourself um, sufficient digestion time if possible, but 110% because what um, a lot of these things from a circadian perspective are very much outside of how we are now living. So this is a holistic problem, especially the one I'm tackling with sleep, because so many people are living upside down worlds. They are doing exactly counter to what we would have done for thousands and thousands, millions of years, uh, when we would be outside in nature, be so active, being you know present to that sunlight and the effects that that would have on CGM and a number of other things. And then instead, we're you know, kind of in more dark lit environments where maybe not eating until much later and we're backloading so much of that activity. We're turning on all the lights then. We're getting all of our activity, our cortisol pulse rising later. That means there's just a lot there. So there are a lot of maladaptive um, things at play. So even if there was just the a little bit of that awareness that, okay, maybe I'm not going to suddenly become this early time-restricted feeding loon, but maybe I could start moving just a little bit earlier and see, are there any effects that are worthwhile enough for how I feel the next day? Yeah. I mean, the experimentation is the biggest thing. Like just try it. If you try it and then you say, okay, it really doesn't work. Then like we move on and we find something else. It is the absolute beauty of having all of these amazing like biometrics and self-quantification tools at our disposal. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. And I know Lauren and Renee, we both talked about it on the episode that we recorded. I just remembered this. Um, it's just kind of all coming back to me that, you know, it's, it's great that we have that at our disposal, but sometimes I think it gets overused, misused, or maybe just misunderstood. And so this is why we need like people like you, Lauren, who like are coaches and can really help uh, 
things becoming not overly prescriptive because I find that that's a really, really bad problem in the health, wellness, optimization, biohacking community is that we hear someone else is doing something. And so therefore we take that as, oh man, that is the, the religion we must follow. It becomes overly prescriptive. And the next thing we know, like our hormones are wrecked. We feel sluggish. We have no libido. We're not sleeping well. And we're like, well, but Ben Greenfield did it. I'm throwing Ben under the bus because a lot of people love to follow Ben. Uh, but Ben Greenfield does it. So therefore I must do it. And it becomes this overly prescriptive thing. And next thing we know, not working out well for him. So I really appreciate that. And again, I love that we have this stuff at our disposal, but also too, this is the reason why we have experts and coaches that can come and help to tinker and tailor and really curate an experience for you that is best for you and learn from the things that aren't working because sometimes we're going to try it, even if it is prescribed by someone else who's an expert in it and it's not going to work, but Hey, what, you know, no harm, no foul. Hopefully let's go back to the drawing board. Try again. Yeah. One last thing I want to say too about the timing piece because I hope it doesn't throw people off and say, oh, well, that's too extreme. I, I'm not going to participate in that. The actual kind of uh, call out from uh, the circadian code from Dr. Sachin Pan and other thinkers in the circadian minded way of being aware of the timing of your food is a bit more gentle than you know what we're discussing of totally skipping dinner because it's really just between sunrise and sunset. Um, and actually, one of the call outs from um, Dr. Sachin Panda is from 7 a.m. to about 7 p.m., which isn't that mm -mm. wild. And actually, I think there's something right. to be aware of of one of the things that I've, find, I've found because every client I'm working with are all wearing uh, at least an aura ring. So we see on the ground exactly what's happening with their sleep and then, you know, in alignment with their behaviors. So with that, one of the things that we've seen is that many people are just unaware, and I'm sure you guys all see this too, um, of the extra bites that we might be taking throughout the course of the night past that perceived last meal. And so that's one of the things that becomes really interesting for many of the clients I work with is then they see, oh, I guess I didn't even realize I had the extra, you know, little bit of popcorn with the Netflix at 930 or whatever. The entire bowl of buttery salted popcorn <laughs> at 1030. <laughs> Also calling myself out because I love popcorn. Yeah, I'm the so same that way. <laughs> that is my wife and I's like go-to cheat snack. It is uh, every. Uh, it, it, I, I would eat it every day if I could, but I know I'd pay for it. Yes. No. That was the, one of the biggest changes. I swear that I've made in my own personal life is not having that like nightly routine. Um, so I'm just saying that because it can be relatively small changes, but we might not realize that just that whole act and kind of turning on the digestive process just might send counter cues to our body and particularly the results with our sleep that we might not want to get. And for so many people I work with that are just so distraught over what feels like their lack of agency to impact their sleep when they start to realize, oh, okay, so just trade out a little bit of that um, kind of mindless snacking and then suddenly I'm able to fall asleep with these, have way less uh, wake-ups, et cetera, et cetera. For them, often that's a very meaningful and maybe take some time change, but it's not totally out of the bounds. So that's my last thing around. It doesn't necessarily have to look so extremist either. I love how your uh, discussion on what you eat in the morning for breakfast, Molly, sparked that entire discussion. That's awesome. That's what roundtables <laughs> like, are for. This is question number one. How long this is question can we number go? one. That's just not. And this is the question that we just derived as a roundtable crew, not even the ones that were submitted nice. to us. <laughs> Love it. Oh my gosh. That is awesome. All right. I'm going to, I, I'll try to truncate uh, what I, no, I mean, I'll just say what I'm going to say. Mine has, the way I, the way I, oh, what's a good way of saying this? 
the way that I normally break my fast is very different from you all. Um, and so I'll just leave it at that, but then I'll say what I did today and then what I normally do. So I will say that the thing that has always been, I won't say always, but more recently than not has been effective for me is a generally a 14 to 16 hour fast. So I normally will stop eating around 6 PM ish, uh, sometimes six thirty seven, depending on how late I got home. And then I will normally eat around 12, 11, 30, 12, sometimes 1230, depending on the day. Sometimes there are days where I just blast through and I've forgotten to eat uh, just because busy work life, it, it, whatever, whatever excuse you throw in there, but my normal. And so I will say that that's my normal day, but the fasting purist would not say that I break my fast at like my lunchtime meal. They would say I break it earlier. And here's why. And this is why I was curious about the whole Thomas DeLauer thing. I'm like, I wonder what he thinks about this because technically I technically break my fast earlier with a very low caloric amount of intake. This is what I do. So I always am in the gym, normally around 5.30, 6 a.m. I do weight weight training, resistance training, and almost immediately following, I will drink a protein shake. That's normally one scoop of uh, Keon Whey. Um, I'm going to sound like a commercial for Keon right now, and I promise I'm not. It's just, I'm, I'm, I, I know a guy. Uh, then, uh, the second thing I put in is two scoops of colostrum from Keon, and then two scoops of, of I think it's what, Vital Farms Collagen. It's the, is that the name of the brand, maybe? It's the blue vital proteins. That's it. Yeah. Vital proteins. And so I am technically breaking my fast after my workout. That's all the amount of calories I have in again, because of what I'm doing, because I'm expending a lot of energy, I'm burning a lot of energy throughout the course of my workout. Then maybe the effects are different than if I were sedentary, ate a breakfast that's really low calorically dense, and then kind of proceeded throughout my day with a lot, not a lot of physical exertion. Maybe I'll stop there before I get into like how I normally break my fast. And I'm just curious because I see Lauren's like got a face of like, I got an answer. I got an answer. So go ahead, Lauren. <laughs> Listen, you do what works for you. I love it. I, I would be curious Boom. from a CGM perspective, what's then happening with your glucose? Because what I see a lot is when the second you break your fast, you hit play on the roller coaster. The roller coaster ride begins for the day. And hopefully it's a kiddie roller coaster. We don't want adult roller coasters with steep ups and downs. But what's happening I, well, after that is it, with exercise, we know glucose is being released to the muscles, but we don't release insulin. So we're not actually harming metabolic health when you see spikes, but we know exercise is a stressor. Food can be a stressor. And so what happens when you put two stressors together, It we would see like what happens on your glucose. And here's the thing. So here's the other variable after throwing, cause it's three stressors that I throw in because it's workout. And so when I'm wearing a CGM, when I'm wearing levels, we'll see increases in glucose, drink a shake. And it normally isn't like from where I'm at post workout that you see this huge spike post prandially. I don't know if it just kind of like it goes up and kind of stays up with food and maybe it would have come down sooner if I wouldn't have food. But here's the kicker, Lauren, is that as soon as I'm done, I guzzle that drink, boom, it goes down and I'm in a sauna for 20 minutes because I always do a post-workout sauna. So, okay, now we have glucose staying up and goes up. And so 
my idea and theory and talking with many individuals that who are kind of very much, you know, like in line with, with this line of thinking, I will say, or experts in this area would say that again, because I've expended so much energy, you expect this increase in glucose, but again, you don't have these large scale fluctuations in insulin. The same thing that you receive with the hormetic stress are very different than the shake. I think that's kind of more conventional changes in, in insulin and uh, in uh, uh, glucose. But then in the sauna, again, you're going to have that spike in glucose. So like, again, I think from if you had no context and you would just see this on a CGM, like it doesn't look very great, right? Because it looks like, uh oh, got like this spike of, of glucose and then it kind of just stays up. And sometimes when I go into the sauna or if I do a cold plunge, which I don't do immediately after uh, a workout anyway, it's normally like four to six hours afterwards, we still see this really big spike. Like, is this potentially damaging? So like, what say you? Like, what what is what's kind of your response there? Do you think this is not so good or do you think because of the context? It's okay. I think your data is going to give us the answer. And I think you probably, no, not probably, you are insanely resilient. And so you probably recover from this. But like we would look at your glucose, do you eventually come back down? It's whether or not it triggers the, the adult roller coaster, which for a lot of people it does because they don't know how to downregulate. They don't know how to manage their stress. And so if they do that first initial stressors, <laughs> then it's the, the rest of the day is ruined. I bet that your day is not ruined from that. And I, I'm pretty sure your data would, would show that. So you are indeed correct. Um, so what ends up happening is that I receive these large scale spikes or what looks like large spikes in glucose when I'm enduring these physiological stressors. And then afterwards, not only does blood glucose go back down, but it goes normally like a little bit lower than where my baseline threshold is not in a hypoglycemic way. I feel amazing. I mean, because for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel so good. And then one of the things that I normally will follow it, especially if I'm doing like a lot of like really intensive work, if like I need um, just a lot of like, uh, if I need to be very cognitively like focused because it's a cognitively demanding task, I'll actually use some ketone esters. So like before this podcast, like I still haven't eaten. It's one o'clock. I'll, I'll throw down like a capful or two of like ketone aid or HVMN. And like, I feel so on point. And a lot of times that's good because I feel really cognitively sharp. I feel energetic, but it's also too like, I could probably go the rest of the day until dinner and not eat anything. Not saying that's good or bad. It's just a thing that happens. So no, I, I don't go through that roller coaster typically, but you know, I don't think that that's commonplace. Um, but I also don't think that most people are, you know, working out at five thirty, six o'clock AM and then doing a sauna and, you know, still eating, you know, whatever type of meal that I eat. Like it's just not commonplace, but for the people listening to here, they might be interested. Like if they do see these crazy fluctuations in glucose, like should we stop halt the process? Or like, do we need to, again, look in context and look in the more longer term play of what happens throughout the day? Zooming out is always going to be helpful. It, like you can't tell anything from like a really narrow lens. Exactly. It's, it's the same yeah. thing with heart rate variability. I mean, it's the same thing. Like if you were just to take a snapshot of 10 minutes of heart rate variability, as you all know, with wearing a Hanu, you're going to see ebbs and flows, ups and downs, streaks in and outs of heart rate variability. And it's going to happen not even on a 10 minute phase. I mean, the epoch could be two seconds. You see it fluctuate 10 points up and 10 points down. Like HRV is a very, and that's, and that's a good thing. You want variability of variability because it means you're adjusting well. If you start to see a stabilization, especially in a downward trend, well, that's, that's what you can be a little bit more you know, alarming per 
se. So I think the same thing goes with that one. Everything in context and everything over a course of period of time and learning kind of how your body responds in certain situations, uh, all important. So hopefully that's a good takeaway for all all of our listeners today. Well, I also just pulled up the notes from Thomas DeLauer's speech to see if I could get some answers because I I always use Otter. I'm like such a nut. Uh, If anyone hasn't used Otter.ai, highly recommend for any of these talks. I haven't, I haven't used that before. Otter.ai? So good. It transcribes everything that people are saying. And so then I have the pictures of this of the thing. So one of the things, and again, this might not, he didn't, I don't think quite go into this. He certainly didn't go into the sauna and all that piece, but he was talking, granted, this was like two years ago. He's always in the research. Maybe things have changed. But at the time he was talking about um, experimenting with, before he would, so now in this talk, he was now playing with skipping a bit more of the later dinners, doing the early breakfast, but he does it after his workout so that he can have the benefits of the fasted workout and BDNF. Um, so he was kind of speaking to that. Don't know if that's still the case. Maybe things have shifted. It's the, it's the, it's the field of nutrition. Things change on a moment to my moment basis. I mean, totally. He's going to send out a tweet, tweet one minute. Yeah. And hear one thing and a tweet next minute's another. It's, it's crazy. Crazy in the field yeah, of nutrition, exactly. health and wellness in general, man. It's it's crazy. It's a it's a good thing though because we're learning, we're growing. But I can understand from the everyday consumer, it's like super frustrating because it's like, well, you know, in 2017, like it was all about keto. Everyone should be keto. I don't care who you are. Like you're gonna go to hell if you're not on keto. And now it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. So it's crazy. It's crazy to me. All right. Well, I know we have been bantering for like a, a large amount of time on all good things. I, I think it's round table. Yeah, no, these are great. Things. These are great. I hope people enjoy it as much as all of us are enjoying <laughs> are recording it because I want, well, I selfishly, know. I want to do more. <laughs> right. Can exactly. we do this every week? All right. Every week it's on, it's on the calendar. Maybe so. Hey, listen, if people want it, like I will, I, I mean, again, I love doing it. I learned so much from you all. Like this Same. is, it's incredible Same. to me. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same. All right. So let's jump into like some user submitted questions. And so one of the things I'll prime everybody listening right now is that probably like the week of, or maybe the week before, whenever, like we do the next round table, because we're going to do another one. Um, all of us will send out like on our social media platforms, maybe in our email newsletters, however we decide we want to do it. We'll send out kind of this prompt of like, Hey, what do you want us to talk about during the round table questions? I mean, you've got someone, you know, HRV and stress and sleep. We've got nutrition and exercise experts. What do you want to know? And so we've compiled a few gr- amazing questions. I don't think we're going to get to all of these, but I mean, in the time we have, because we don't have a ton of time, of time, maybe we can get to two of them. We'll see. Maybe we can get to more depending on how long-winded we get, or maybe we just get to one. We will see. Uh, but we got some questions that we compiled, and I'm really excited. The first one, I selfishly want to ask this one. I mean, this actually came through my Instagram, and so I, I have to ask this one because I am so curious. And the reason I'm so curious is because Lauren and Renee, when you guys came onto my podcast, on the Hanu Health podcast, we talked very briefly briefly about this. And I want to say we even mentioned Molly's name during this discussion, because Molly, I think you're going to have a lot to say about this one as well. But one of the things that stuck out about the question I'm going to ask is that I think, and again, this is just the primer, I think Lauren Renee, you guys actually might have a slightly different and maybe more nuanced view and approach of this because of your dad. So here we go. All right. Here's the question. It's what are your thoughts on mouth tape? 
I recall hearing that there are some potential reasons for not using it. And so again, you'll have to remind me, I believe there was just maybe one or two comments you guys made about, yeah, it's probably not the best thing for everybody or maybe something to that extent. So correct me if I'm wrong. So have at it. I am so excited to hear your response on this. Uh Oh, Oh no. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, I want to hear the dad. to go first. I love their dad. I have lots amazing. to say, but Renee, yeah, it's I your start turn. the rant. And maybe, and maybe Renee, it would be helpful to tell a little bit of, uh, for our listeners who may not know a little bit about your dad's background and kind of where you got this, uh, th- this information. Yeah, he is really good. He's been on our podcast too. Such a fan. I need to have him on Hanu. I, I, I don't know why we haven't made this connection. Yes. We'll introduce you. Definitely. Yeah. So our dad, um, AKA like the OG biohacker who kind of got Lauren and I into biohacking as somewhat as kids. Um, but he's been a biological dentist for 45 years, which if anyone's not familiar with that, uh, biological or holistic dentistry, there's no mercury fillings, no root canals, no fluoride, safely removing the silver fillings. So it's um, a little different than traditional dentistry. But anyways, he has moved into the sleep apnea space and does a lot with this, a lot of like at-home sleep studies like Molly does. And so as far as the mouth taping, we all, I think we all would agree at times it is helpful. Maybe during the day, if you are a mouth breather, right, we, we do want to train ourselves to be breathing through our nose. Mm-hmm. The problem with mouth taping at night is if you have sleep apnea or obstructive airway issues, you're slapping your mouth shut, which is where you are trying to get oxygen while you're sleeping. So this can be really dangerous if you have sleep apnea, right? So when you have sleep apnea, your body is trying to compensate to get that oxygen. So it ends up clenching your jaw. You grind your teeth together to open up the muscles in the neck, in the airway, to try and get any oxygen in, right? Because we need oxygen to survive. So that is what's happening. And a lot of people that have sleep apnea also have a lot of obstruction in the nasal um, passageway. So Mm. if that is not cleared out, now you're blocking the second hole to get air in. And now you can have some really severe issues. So I'd say if you're not sure if you have sleep apnea or any of these issues, work with someone like Molly, get tested, work with a biological dentist, Um, you can also just play with it during the day. So maybe you put that mouth tape on and then you go do a workout. Are you able to breathe through your nose? Are you really struggling? That would be my pro tip is try it during the day before you try it at night and be cautious with that. Yes. I so appreciate that because I think there's been sort of a blanket, um, uh, portrayal of the excitement or the intrigue. And I do also realize that some people maybe even listening are still like, what is mouth tape? What are you even talking about? Uh, so there's that might've been a good first uh, thing to talk yeah. about, but uh, I just, I don't know. I feel like, Oh, by design, like all of our listeners are like mouth tape. Of course. Probably yeah. anyone probably listening to this probably knows, but <laughs> it's, it's still surprising to me how many people I'll just, you know, drop that too. And they're like, I have no idea what you're saying. And that sounds so out there. Good call. Uh, Explain. So- <laughs> good call. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yes. No, totally. A hundred percent. So, um, one in, so a little definition of what that could look like. There's a lot of products now on the market or even just using like 3M tape that you could put on your mouth while you're sleeping with the thinking and certainly with a big advent or a big uptick in popularity since, um, James Nestor's book breathe came out. Um, and a lot more awareness of how this could potentially help support nitric oxide, proper breathing throughout the course of the night, not mouth breathing, the adverse effects that could have for your sleep quality and health, et cetera, certainly during uh, sleep specifically, but then also throughout the course of the day. And I think in that 
for some groups of society, the excitement of that, one of the things that has been lost in the in the verbiage um, is the cautionary side of that. And because I think there are so many people running around that are absolutely unaware that they have sleep apnea and could be doing themselves a disservice uh, with that really problematic. Molly, do you know if there are any numbers on like the percentage of individuals who may have undiagnosed sleep apnea? So like they just don't even know it, but they're just kind of walking around doing living their everyday life, sleeping the way they are or not so well? There are some, there's an uptick in even a, a idea of that certainly around a third of the population having difficulty breathing disorders while sleeping. And could that be even more uh, individuals that have some variation of that. So that might not just be sleep apnea, that might be some disordered breathing, because there are certainly categories of this. So mild, moderate, or severe. And so uh, there's a lot of different studies and ways of speaking to this, depending on what you know, categorization you're putting that into. Um, but then certainly with the discussions of could that be far more reaching than we even realize with even an asterisk, I just was at an event um, at Stanford that was really focusing in on sleep apnea. One of the things that they spoke to was a underserved group of the population that they were really looking to identify um, being more women over the age of, I think the call out was around 40 and up that are, they have some different characteristics to be on the lookout for, for sleep apnea that is often going unseen and often even um, slender women, maybe athletic, what have you, but uh, outside of the bounds of what you might think of as people with sleep apnea. So I'm saying all this because there could be a lot more individuals that are dealing with disordered breathing. So so what um, Renee and Lauren are speaking to is so crucial to have a little bit more reverence for that process versus just, oh, it's this new fad. Let me, you know, just do it because. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's become ubiquitous in the health optimization, peak performing biohacking community. Like if you want to sleep well, you take the advice of, you know, said influencer that says you must wear mouth tape. And again, this is just kind of how things gets passed down as a prescription by the individuals. Um, and it's not because these individuals are being malicious. It's that people like trust them and that's fine. Like that's okay. Like most of these people are providing really legitimate resources and ideas and protocols, but it's not that it's for every single person. Um, and one thing to kind of point and highlight that you were talking about, Molly, Patrick McCune talks to, with me all the time about this. And I think this is super fascinating that there's a very, very high correlation between individuals who have a low CO2 tolerance and undiagnosed sleep apnea. So you can find your low CO2 tolerance or maybe just overall CO2 tolerance by doing like a CO2 tolerance test that looks for dysfunctional breathing, doing something like Bolt score, which is the body oxygen level test. We actually have that built into the Hanu app. Um, that's my little shameless plug for the day. Uh, but it's a great kind of mechanism. And if we know that if we're like under 10 seconds for your bolt score, then the level of dysfunctional breathing is very, very high. And so doing things like engaging in breath work, CO2 uh, type tolerance, breath holds, you know, to the extent that you can do them can really help to increase overall functional breathing and can therefore help to reduce the deleterious impacts or effects of sleep apnea, not saying it will cure it. But again, I think that people just go to you know, straight away like, oh, mouth tape is good. So therefore I must use it. 
But I like that there are these caveats. I've got a question that I want to follow up with, two of them. Um, but I'm curious because I know Lauren, I haven't heard from you yet. I'm curious if you have anything to to say even more than what we've what we've already talked about, or have we kind of covered the basis of the the caveats? I think you guys covered everything. I just wanted to add. I, I feel like it's such a teachable moment for health seekers and biohackers uh, when we trust an influencer or a health professional. I think I think it's up to us to remind people that like it's individualized. We have to come back to the biochemical individuality. And sure, I'm all for an N of one experiment. Try it. But like, remember to be curious, look at your data, continue to ask yourself, like, is this true? Is this true for me? Is it working for me? Like, do I have evidence to support that? And I think because mouth tape, I mean, you could just get a piece of masking tape if you wanted to. So it's relatively cheap as opposed to some of the devices I have Mm -hmm. that are just insanely expensive. People are going to see me using it and go buy it tomorrow, you know, but Someone immediately would go, oh, I can mouth tape tonight. Sure, but don't today decide I'm going to wear this for the rest of my life. Like we have to keep teaching people to be really curious and to listen to their bodies and make sure it's right for them. Makes sense. So I have two questions to follow up. Um, The first one would be, let's say theoretically we have the ability to rule out any dysfunctional breathing and we have the ability to rule out that, yes, sleep disorders, sleep apnea is not a problem. If it works for the individual, which kind of is maybe me answering my own question here, but is there the opportunity for someone or should someone or maybe should someone not wear mouth tape every single night if all of those things have been ruled out? Do you guys have any thoughts or take on that? And the reason I ask is because for all I know, I do not have any dysfunctional breathing problems. I do not have sleep apnea. For me, I wear mouth tape every single night and I'm not using this as a way to promote like, yes, you should go do it. We just had the conversation as to why you shouldn't listen to me if I did say that. But is there potential problems that could arise even if I know that there's no underlying conditions or problems? I would just say, come back to your data again and listen to your body. Like if you feel great and you're data supports that, go for it. But if you're like, oh, I'm waking up kind of tired, but I'm going to keep doing it. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, sure. I don't see why not. I would say, yeah, ditto to that. Check your data. Is your HRV, you know, increasing? Is your time in deep sleep increasing? Or, you know, your respiratory data decreasing? Um, If there's no changes in data, and like Lauren said, you're not even like feeling anything, then yeah, maybe like, why are you doing it? Um, I would also wonder we are supposed to be breathing through our noses when we sleep. So should we be relying on this mouth tape or do we feel like we could train ourselves? You wear the mouth tape for a year. Does that train your body to then sleep without the mouth tape? It's a beautiful philosophical question, Renee. If a tree falls in a forest, but you aren't there to hear it, did it make a sound? (laughs) But no, it's a really, it's a, I think that's a legitimate question. I'm not even sure if I've thought about it that way. And now I'm kind of like scratching the head a little bit. Like our ancestors weren't using mouth tape. They weren't doing any of this stuff. But they also had much wider jaws, right? Their jaws were built to fit all 32 teeth. Their airways were much larger. I think that's a really good point that Renee's bringing up, that there are entire individuals that they have entire practices around helping to uh, discover, do you need a tongue tie surgeries? Do you need to then 
work on certain muscles in your face. Um, again, one of the uh, sleep events that I went to that had sleep surgeons present were speaking to if you do have undiagnosed sleep apnea, how literally your face shape can change once they um, really identify that, change your breathing. So even from a beauty aesthetic perspective, that can shift. Also, this brings about the importance of addressing this for kids because that can literally um, you know, affect the skull shape and the formation of that from the beginning. So that's something to really be aware of. Um, and then I will say, cause I don't, you know, there's also, I mean, I mouth tape basically every single night. Um, and I have tested that with a couple different devices. One, the sleep image ring, Renee, this will be on your Voxer, uh, when you, <laughs> when you take a look at that one. Okay. Uh, so, can, so you can, <laughs> case this is a repeat. Uh, so the sleep image ring is FDA cleared and they will, and it actually is um, diagnostic for sleep apnea. Uh, mm. so you can get this through your doctor and it also looks at HRV. So Dr. J, you might be interested in that one. Uh, if you haven't looked at that one and, um, so that one, you can get a bit more data around the quality of your sleep. So I have tested that with, um, with mouth tape and without, uh, and then Wesper is an interesting product too, that is a wearable. They have had some improvements upon there too, based on their first model and their newer model. Um, but now wearing that one can give you a bit more data than some of the current wearables in different ways. Uh, so uh, I would say they are just kind of filling some of the gaps that some of the other wearables are doing. So it can show you things about your sleep position throughout the course of the night, your breathing, your snoring levels, um, and then speak with some sleep professionals uh, to go over your data. And then if it looks like you might have signs of sleep apnea with them, then they can get you an at-home sleep test to further actually diagnose that. Um, but so you can test all that, especially with Wesper, you could do it like if you wanted to every single night, it's not the most comfortable because it's not like a true wearable wearable, but um, you could hypothetically do that and then test a little bit more and see if it's working for you or not. Cool. Can I throw something in there? Um, you mentioned children. Children, um, if anyone wants to see some wild pictures, Google Healthy Start for Kids. Um, it's a program where they're expanding you know, the jaw, they're fixing... I guess the structure of the teeth, opening the airway, but the before and after photos of these kids going through the program, I mean, their jaws go from like this for anyone watching the YouTube video, like this to like this in like a year. It's And obviously like the structure as a child, that's what's setting us up for adulthood. That's why so many adults have all these problems. Like we shouldn't need to get our wisdom teeth taken out. We're, humans are have evolved to have 32 teeth, but these kids are being born with these narrow jaws and then we can't fit them. So healthy start, Google it. The pictures are crazy. And maybe if you have a kid, you might be able to find a dentist in your area that does that. Well, just to kind of wrap us up on the mouth taping piece, I'm going to follow up with one question that I have for all of you. Molly's already answered it, but I'll, I'll reiterate her answer just in a second. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I have worn mouth tape now nightly for probably the past maybe two years, three years. I don't know. Time is a weird thing for me right now. Like having started a company plus the pandemic, like I don't know what time is anymore. I have a four-year-old. Yeah. So it's probably actually been more than two years. It's probably been like four or five. I, but again, yeah, time, time is weird for me initially because again, I'm a big biometrics guy. Um, I was looking at a couple of different things. Um, so I was looking at it from yes, a sleep architecture and staging perspective, but then also looking at it from a recovery perspective as well. Obviously sleep and recovery, very 
very much interconnected. So when I say recovery, I was looking at other types of biometrics related to respiration rate, of course, heart rate variability and resting heart rate. And I noticed a pretty profound effect when I started wearing mouth tape. Now, was that profound effect like, you know, me going from a hundred millisecond, like HRV to like 250? No, but it was pretty consistent. And the way I kind of tested this was to look at, again, sleep architecture and staging, all those other biometrics that I just mentioned. And I looked at what does it look like with mouth tape and what does it look like without it? And I kind of ran some, you know, in of one experience uh, or experiments and checked the data that way. And I did see kind of those good, those shifts. And, uh, and for me, it's been effective. The one thing that I will say, and I have gravitated to this, is that I used to wear uh, like the Somnifix that like w- actually goes on the mouth, um, so the tape goes over the lips. Where, but where the last like year and a half, maybe two years uh, since then, I've been wearing MyoTape, which is Patrick's brand. They go around the lips, which just provides a nice little seal by pulling the lips together. And I've found that I like it a lot more because number one, if like something happens and I need to like say there's an emergency and the kid calls me into the room, I don't have to waste the tape by pulling it off. And then it's now it's void. I can't even use it again. I can actually go in and talk to him, even though it's a little bit weird. They're like, dad, what is that around your mouth? Uh, but, yeah. but I'm okay with that. I like it that way. But then also too, I wonder, and again, I'm curious, Lauren and Renee, do you think having something like that, that doesn't actually seal the lips together may potentially mitigate the effects um, that could be problematic for someone with sleep apnea? Or do you think even that is probably taking it too far? Like if you know you have a diagnosable sleep apnea, dysfunctional breathing, you still should stay away from it, period. Like do you, do do you think that makes a difference or do you think it's like eh, hands off still? I don't, I'm just wondering like what kind of adaptation is it forcing on the body? Yeah. Maybe it is kind of encouraging your body to breathe better. Yeah. I like it. I want to try that tape. I know that. Good. I'll just, I'll just, I, should, I should send it to you all. I have a bunch of them. So I should just send you all back. Everybody is going to like start emailing me now that listens to this podcast. Can I have a Give it too? to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It certainly sounds better than the ones uh, Renee and I were sent this tape that is in the shape of lips. I was like, oh, cute branding. Really horrible for wearing through the night. <laughs> it was super sticky. Like I drink water if I wake up to go to the bathroom. I was like, oh, this is terrible. So yeah, but to answer your question, I, I would think so. I would think that would be better. I like the the VO, VO2, VO2 one. That's like the shape of an I or an H. But you can wear it either way, H or I. Um, But I feel like maybe that would be a good way to break it in because I feel like if you really needed to mouth breathe, like you could push that thing off. Because the one that James Nestor recommended was like surgical tape, like 3M surgical tape. Like when you put that on, like it, it, it's it, it, like it hurts kind of when it comes off. So it, it's not... That's intense. It's, yeah, it's, it's more intense. So I think there's... Know some good options out there other than 3M surgical tape. It's cheap 3M surgical surgical tape, but the other ones are quite expensive comparatively. The other thing you could try is when you are going to play with mouth tape at night is to use some kind of nasal spray before. I really like a um, clear xylitol nasal spray or like mm-hmm. our Gen 23 silver nasal spray just to like make sure that that's like cleaned out. Because mm-hmm. sometimes that's a simple yeah. a simple thing. It's not like full blown sleep apnea. It's just like oh there was a little bit of congestion and now it's gone and now. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I actually use a nasal strip as well. I mean, I just kind of throw everything there. I do the nasal strip plus the myotape and then I've got my, you know, eye mask on. I know I'm going to start talking. I'm always going to be like, don't do that. And um, hopefully everything I've said thus far is okay. (laughs) What does your wife think? (laughs) My wife does the exact same thing. She doesn't do the uh, nasal strips just because like they're very adhesive as well. I like the way that they open, but like when you go to peel those off and I get the sensitive ones, uh, like it hurts. Like it's not fun. It can like dry out your skin the magnetic ones. Oh, have I have I ones? have seen those and I have been tempted to buy them because Instagram knows and they will market those things like crazy to me. I uh, maybe I should just do it because now I've got Molly's approval. I know, I know they are wild. They really will expand your whole I mean your face shape almost looks different. Suddenly your your nose is like augmented. The brand I've seen, I think it's called Intake Breathing. Is that the brand? Intake? Okay. I'll I'll, I'll try it out. I get marketed them all all the time. Their algorithms are beautiful. They know what to do. They know what they're doing. I was just on a podcast called the Sleeping Around Podcast, which is such a clever name. And uh, It sounds a little promiscuous, though. I don't know. I know. It does sound very (laughs) funny. Like, what is happening here? Um, But they were sponsored by uh, Airway Stints, which I haven't tried, but that one is another one where you can literally have a stints in there. So, yes, so many different things for nasal dilators. but But the magnetic ones, I have never experienced anything as dramatic as that. So that could be something to play with. I'm picturing you get like a Shrek nose. Is that what it looks like? Shrek? (laughs) It really does feel like, oh my God, I never realized my nose. Well, it's like the old adage of your parents saying you keep making that face, it'll get stuck. Like, I don't know. Like, is it going to get stuck? I've heard that a million times. (laughs) Yes, I don't know the long-term effects of that. Uh, I don't want to have any beauty problems for people. (laughs) Exactly. I know we need to wrap things up because I know we need to get going. I feel like we could go on and on. We went we got through one question. I know. But it was it was so much fun. The one point of question I do want to ask, because everybody heard that I do wear mouth tape every night. I know, Molly, you said you wear them most nights. I'm just curious, Lauren and Renee, is that a part of your practice or protocol? Like, Do you guys actually wear mouth tape? Wear it randomly. I, I should do. be yeah. a better biohacker and do a consistent experiment. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's a great biohacking I have answer. probably five different types in my bedside table. And I have plenty. I should do it. <laughs> right. And I'll send you some myotape. They add one more on there to, to test. Okay. <laughs> Wait, but Renee, okay. what did you say? Your data? My data doesn't change with the mouth tape. Yeah. I got to say, so, cause I've seen so many people test this. I've seen some people that dramatically you'll see a shift with their respiratory rate, et cetera, et cetera. Other people, I cannot see where they start, started taping and stopped taping. It's absolutely the same. So that's another, what Lauren was saying, what Renee has spoken to with Dr. J, what you're speaking to is like the data can be so helpful for helping to, you know, all these different biohacks you could engage in to decipher what might make the actual sense for you to engage in and not. Yeah. Well, if you're, if your objective and subjective data do not change, don't waste your time and your money like that. Your money put your money toward good food or whatever, whatever. Yeah. So totally, totally agree. Yeah. Well, yeah, plus I my husband really is like, culture my husband's like, are you going to do this every <laughs> night? <laughs> Right, I know. Brian, oh my god! Oh, it's funny. <laughs> All right, everybody, man, this has right. been a blast. I, I I cannot wait for the next one because there are some questions in here that I'm like, I was dying to get answered, and I know I think I even teased like the one that I wanted to like pitch over to Molly. But hey, everybody is going to tune in next time because they're curious as to yes. what this question is. And I guarantee you, like you can bet on it. I am saving that one because I want to know about it, <laughs> about full moons. Again, I'm going to leave it right there. Yes. Full moons? What? Maybe we can do it on a full moon. Right. Who knows? Yeah, right. Prep. That's it. I like it. I like it. Yeah, right? Well, well hey. 
all of you. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for putting this together and coming together. And I can't wait for the next oh, one. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you for putting oh, it together. Absolutely. Yes, I know. I feel like you were our leader on this and this was fantastic. Yeah, And we'll, and we'll see if, if people like the cadence, I don't mind doing this, but if we want to like switch it up and like someone else kind of like guides and drives, totally cool by me. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. I, th- I say we switch it up and just test it out. And if we find some format that we like better than others, there we go. So fun. All right, everybody. Well, on all platforms, thank you again for tuning in. We're really excited to do this and to do it again and again and again, hopefully. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.